Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, the ancient world, and kind of whatever comes into our mind as we have, as we just feel like talking about things. My name is Thomas Magby, and I'm joined, as always, by AJ Hannenberg. That's this guy right here. And Graham Donaldson. Hello. <laughs> Hello, <clears throat> indeed. Sorry, just eating an Oreo. I don't blame you. Thank you for bringing snacks. Guys, I've been thinking recently about getting my portrait taken. Mm. I, I want a just giant painting of myself. Is this is this a good idea? <clears throat> it seems like a great idea. Great. I'm going to get it and then pray that all the bad things that I do just go to the painting. Is this a good idea? Well, if you get a portrait, yeah. we can freeze this moment in time okay. so that your present beauty yeah. will never fade. Yeah. I, I I think Thomas gets better as he ages. Ah. Maybe is that just me? <laughs> like, like a fine wine, like a fine wine, yeah, like a like a nice good. sharp cheddar. You just get better. Thanks. Wow, and you rhyme. But there's, wow, there's, what a there's a tipping point with cheese, though. Mm. <laughs> as with Thomas, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah naturally. Okay, so today we're talking about Dorian Gray. Yep. Have you all seen? So there's a movie Dorian Gray. Where I've they, seen it. Yeah. So that, there's, I think there's a few different versions. I, I, I don't. I've seen whatever painting is in like an old black and white one up in the at the the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum up in New York. It is, it is an ugly looking. And it is a terrible movie. Like, oh, is not, it really it's the black and white one? Yeah, it's not very I good. I remember watching the black and white one as a child, and it mm-hmm. scared the bazonkas out of me. Because mm-hmm. when the painting changed and uh-huh. I saw it for the first time, I just couldn't see the stern maybe I'm eyes thinking the mind. new. Maybe I'm thinking the new one. Did the Oh, like the color? In, like the, from in your ago, black and white version, did it go like, <laughs> when you looked at it? Because in the new no, version, the so. painting I makes noises. the painting made noises. I can't remember. The okay. new one, Dorian Gray, is played by Prince Caspian. The same actor really? who played Prince really? Caspian in, uh, in those unfortunate Narnia remakes. Mm. But they, mm. I've never, I haven't watched any of them. They're pretty bad. Oh, I don't know. I, I like them. But then again, I have very low movie standards. <laughs> yes, we have. We, yeah, Hanenberg and I have different. different I, both of you are very discerning with your Snoot, movie choices. Snooty is the word you're looking for. Do, I, I choose to be a little it's more kind pandering of I, than that. Yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, I'll use the other word. Anyway, let's talk about Endgame for the next hour, guys. Oh, I, sorry, I refuse no. to watch. Oh, I'm seeing that tomorrow. There's no way I could it. care less about a paint by numbers action movie. Go watch it tomorrow and find out if you care that little. I can't even see the first 23. <laughs> I haven't even seen the last one where they, like, they all die with the, with uh, the purple guys for a movie from three years ago or whatever. Maybe oh. it's, I think maybe it's just expectations. Like, I, I don't expect for my soul to be filled by this film. I expect to see some really big green men mm. punch some really big purple men mm. and then. I, I'm totally entertained. Like, that's all that I require. Speaking of expectations for your soul, how about... Hey, we get started? Okay. All right, so I can't I can't believe we've made it this many episodes without having done Dorian Gray, partially because the picture of Dorian Gray is one of my very favorite books. I think it's great. I really enjoy it. I'm so glad that we teach it now in 12th grade here at Veritas, and, and most of the people who read it enjoy it just as much. Hanenberg, what did we, I can't remember, what did we get rid of in order to teach the portrait of Dorian Gray? Ah, what, I, what was it? Was it Was it The Wasteland? Yeah. Oh, so hey. you, you got rid of a, yeah, you got rid of a bad poem to add oh. in a good book, isn't that? <laughs> so we got rid of The Wasteland, <laughs> and yeah, I think it was also The Sun Also Rises, wasn't it? Yeah, but that was based on more of a like, is this classical? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway. Okay. Can you say that about The Wasteland too? Sure. Anyway, sorry. Sure. Good. All right. Let me tell you a little bit about a little bit about Oscar Wilde before we actually get into the book. The book shouldn't take me that long to explain. There's, you know, I, I've broken it down into about twelve movements, but it's it's pretty simple the plot. And 
but I think the way it interacts with Oscar Wilde himself and the way that that story is now interacting with culture is particularly interesting. So he was born on the 16th of October in 1854, and he lived until the 30th of November, 1900. So he died when he was 46, which is pretty Pretty young. young. Like, that's pretty young. There are people who live to 92, and that's, I mean, that's only halfway through, right? 44 is? Oh, oh, is that gotcha. what, oh, I thought you were saying 90. I thought you were talking about living to be 200. Anyway, sorry. No, no. That's like incredible. 46 would be halfway through 92, right? He, he died pretty young. He was born in Dublin, and he was the Dublin, not Dubland. Okay, yep. Good. I think that's this. a dubstep club. <laughs> Dublin? Dublin. Dublin. Oh, man. Whoop, whoop, whoop. All right, he was born <laughs> in... Whoop, 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 He was born in Dublin, the second of three kids, which makes sense, so he had a little middle child syndrome. Uh, his mom was an avid writer of poetry. She wrote under the pseudonym Speranza, and she wrote poetry for the Revolutionary Young Islanders in 1848. <laughs> she was a lifelong Irish nationalist. She wanted ah. Ireland to separate, and so she would read this revolutionary poetry to her sons. And she was always interested in sort of the neoclassical revival. She had Greek busts in her home and was just sort of always interested in classical education, which is which is kind of awesome, yeah. right? So Oscar Wilde was taught in his home until he was nine. His dad, William, was an ear and eye surgeon who hmm. eventually was knighted for his service as a medical advisor and for working on the census. Man, if I knew I could get a knighthood for just working on the census. <laughs> on a census? Like like of just like counting people? Counting people? people. Yeah. Oh. That sounds awesome. That's One, easy way. <laughs> two, three, I, I knight you, Graham four, Donaldson. Yeah. five. Wait. <laughs> Seven. Mark it in the book, Philippi. All right. He was baptized as an infant in St. Mark's in Dublin, and he had Catholic. three... Yes, Catholic. He, he had three step-siblings, Henry, Emily, and Mary. So six kids all together. That's a pretty crazy home. Mm-hmm. Homeschooled till nine, like I said. He learned French and German from his caretakers, one like a governess and then a French bon or whatever it is. And so these, these two women would take care of him, and they taught him their languages. So he grew up, you know, having three languages and being taught by his poet... Mother, you, you can't really ask for a more auspicious beginning for a writer. Right. So he, when he went off to u- university, he got a scholarship to read the classics at Trinity College in Dublin and shared a room with his older brother, which I'm sure <laughs> no was problems. Rough. Yeah. <laughs> As a student, he worked with a professor on his book, The Social Life in Greece. Mahaffey, the professor, was, uh, was what Oscar considered his first and best teacher. Hmm. Mahaffey originally boasted of Wilde as a pupil, right? He comes out and is this prolific, fantastic writer, and then later, after Oscar Wilde's fall, would call him the only blot on his tutorship, hmm. which is kind of a shame to yeah. see someone so proud of you and then so not proud of you anymore. Yeah. He went from there to Magdalen College, where he had gotten a scholar. He had won a prize to go and read the greats for four years until 1878. There, he became a mason and rose to the degree, sublime degree of master mason. Seriously? Wow. Yeah. He was a stonemason? He was a stonemason. Wow. He, he was really active in college, and then after he graduated college, he was like, eh, and just didn't pay his dues, cool. and eventually it <laughs> There's a classical stuff left. episode we gotta do. Oh, masons? Yeah. Masonry. Yeah, that'd be cool. I had a I had a mason neighbor. It was awesome. I woke up- weird? I woke up one night <laughs> there we go. at two in the morning to the reflection of flames on my window yep. and was like, oh, fire in the yard. And so I ran because I saw flames like down on our driveway and I ran downstairs to find him sitting with a staff <laughs> meditating in the middle of a flaming circle. Good for him. And his girlfriend was like, dude, it's okay. <laughs> this I is got totally this. Normal. And I was standing there in my boxers like ready for action. <laughs> what? Went, yeah. That, that's a real thing that happened to me. Man, that's weird. Yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> anyway, so it only lasted in. while he was. Not that I was interested in the first place, but now here we are. Right. He always considered converting to Catholicism, and for that reason, he often spoke to clergy, and he had an audience with Pope Pius IX. <laughs> his dad, who was not Catholic, threatened to cut off his funds. Mahaffey, the professor, thought it was a bad idea. He still wanted to do it, but on the day he was supposed to go and sort of officially join and get baptized in the church, he sent flowers instead. He just <laughs> didn't want to commit to a formal creed. Okay. They were they were altar lilies. So oh, really? I like the pun. That's funny. Uh, at Magdalene College, he sort of developed his his tendency towards aestheticism, and we'll talk more about aestheticism as we sort of move on, but he wore long hair, sort of dandyish clothes. He thought sports were very silly, although he occasionally boxed. Hmm. He decorated his room with peacock feathers, <laughs> lilies, china, and just, you know, all sorts of decadence and would entertain people lavishly. And he had this famous line that would become sort of a a motto for the aesthetic aesthetes. It was, I find it harder and harder every day to live up to my blue China. <laughs> okay. And some people found that his critics found that to be totally vacuous. Right. Right. And he was once physically attacked by four students and dealt with them single handedly, sort of silencing some of the critics that wow. had been, you know, calling him a sissy. And, he cultivated his myth, which actually ended up in him getting temporarily expelled hmm. for sort of cultivating his own myth. And then he just went to Greece and then came back a little late to college and sort of, you know, did it with all his big flair. He, he met Walter Pater in his third year. And Walter Pater argued that man's sensibility to beauty should be revi- refined above all else, right? Each moment should be lived to its absolute fullest extent. And his book was what Oscar Wilde called the book that has had such a strange influence over my life. I think it's it might be that book that becomes the yellow book in the picture of Dorian Gray. So there's a book that has a big influence over Dorian in the play, and it's it says a lot of the, these sort of strange things. He, he used to carry it with him. Uh, then he met John Ruskin, a guy who sort of gave this purpose, arguing that the importance of art lies in the potential, in its potential for the betterment of society. So don't just like art for art. You like art because it helps to develop the person and can eventually help to develop society, yeah. right? Beauty must be allied with moral good. And that's John Ruskin, like, popularized those little quaint houses, the right. craftsman style. Really? Yeah. Hmm. He won... A, the 1878 Newgate Prize for his poem Ravenna and graduated with a double first and a Bachelor's of Arts in Classical Moderations and the Greats. So he he was classically educated, this guy. Awesome. He, he read all the Greeks. He knew Iliad Odyssey. Like that was what he practiced in college. That and decorating with peacock feathers. <laughs> the important things. Yeah. After college, he went back home and hooked back up with Florence Balcombe, who who was his childhood sweetheart. And he was like, ah, we had such a great time together. And they were together for a while. Eventually she would leave him and marry Bram Stoker, the guy who wrote Dracula. Dracula. Yeah. So apparently there's something wonderful about this woman, Florence Balcombe. Like there's just something magnetic that draws in all the writers. Maybe it's her spelling. I don't know what it is, but to land, not only Oscar Wilde and have him obsessed with you, but then to land later Bram Stoker. That's, I feel like that's a win. Oh, my takeaway is that she must be total uh, weirdo like that those are the two mm-hmm. yeah that those are the two guys who are interested in I'm her. just picturing Helena Bottom Carter there okay oh <laughs> I can see that alright that makes sense so he uh, yeah he returns to England in 78 so a short jump back home he tries to get a position in the classics in Oxford or Cambridge and that's guys 
correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of kids who graduate school and they don't know anything else to do except try to do more school. Yes, true. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that's kind of a, an automatic thing for kids when they leave college, right? I, I felt aimless when I graduated. And so doing what you've been doing this whole time, just learning and te- teaching is, makes sense. Yeah. He had all along been sort of published in little bits. Uh, he, he went to London to get himself established as a, as a sort of a bachelor, spent the last of his inheritance there. And he published in 1881 his poems or collected poems. It was pretty well received, prompted a second printing. It was print bound in rich enamel parchment cover, <laughs> had a gilt blossom on the cover, of course printed did. on handmade Dutch paper. And for a long time, he would give it as gifts to dignitaries that he met and that sort of thing. The Oxford Union, by the way, rejected it and wouldn't allow it in their library <laughs> because in a very tight vote, they vote that it was guilty of plagiarism. Oh, wow. That's bad. And not all the critics <clears throat> like it. This a magazine said called Punch said, the poet is wild, but his poetry is tame, which is... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's pretty good. The Brits. Yeah. All right. He went on a short lecture tour in the US in 82. Pretty well received, although the press was not a fan. In 83, he went back to Paris. 84, back to London, where he married the woman Constance Lloyd. She was a woman of uh, fairly ample means. She had a pretty decent allowance for a young woman, which would probably be around 40 grand, I think, today. It was about 25,000 pounds in today's money. What's the pound going for, Graham? You, you might know. It's low now. It's like, what, a buck 30? Like a buck 30, so yeah, maybe like yeah. Yeah, about, about 40 grand. So 25 go. times one point, whatever. What is it, Thomas? 129. So yeah, 32 and a half thousand dollars if we're converting three two and a half okay so about there yeah so on her you know allowance i'm just thankful we were very specific with that number so so, i mean you gotta you put it in perspective that was 100 years ago (laughs) no no that's in today's money 100 years ago was like 250 pounds it was very it was very little so they they sort of used all that money to furnish their apartment lavishly and grandly and you know oscar wilde had very expensive taste got a you got to, you know, make your place look good if, if you are going to espouse as a way of life, being surrounded by beautiful objects and being surrounded by art and sorting living art out into the real world. You got to got you got to spend some money on what your apartment looks like. Mm-hmm. So he um, this is this is about when he met a guy named Robert Ross. Now, Robert Ross was a young 17 year old homosexual who was determined to, to, to seduce Oscar Wilde and. He, Oscar Wilde at this point, his wife had just had a second kid and he was, he was finding himself physically repulsed by her and so was open to the advancements of this young man, Robert Ross. He did get seduced. Uh, and then he would sort of continue this relationship with Robert Ross for a really long time. Uh, during this time, he also edited a magazine called The Woman's World, which was great for a while, and then ultimately he sort of got bored of the actual real work that it takes to make a magazine, you know, like running an office sure. and doing editing, right. and like all of that stuff was boring for him. He, he liked to write and sort of be lavish, and so he left, and Woman's World died one issue after he left. <laughs> it, it outlived him by a single issue. He wrote essays and poems, et cetera, et cetera, and then in 1890, he published The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was instantly lambasted for being... <laughs> overtly homosexual oh, oh. right it, there was there were because the version so the, when we read the book now it's an edited version of that original one correct? yeah we yeah, typically yeah. don't read the original right. version yeah you can get i think that I makes think, it sound like it's some night and day thing the edited version is not all that much edited from the original I, I, anyway, it's uh, true i think in our book we actually have both we've got both oh, really? and i okay, we, yeah. we've read them both for when we were considering this book and and either one is 
I mean, they're not, one's not that much more veiled. Veiled. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there are a few extended, expanded chapters, mm-hmm. but, but in the current version of it's, it's, there are undertones in there. Mm-hmm. There's some hints at it, but it's not, it's certainly not overt mm-hmm. and it doesn't promote anything. It doesn't discuss it directly. It, it just it, sort of hints at things. And that's what's in the original version. Yeah. Just, in both of them, it is that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he, he edited it yeah. and then re-released it with a brand new introduction, hmm. uh, a foreword, which I will read a little bit of a, a little bit to you. He released that in 91 and it was fairly well received. Uh, he went to Paris, wrote a few plays. The one play he wrote in Paris, Salome, would not go perform because it depicted biblical characters and they were not going to have that on their stage. Hmm. Then he wrote Lady Windermere's Fan and everybody loved Lady Windermere's <laughs> Fan. It was great. It was performed in, in London. In mid-91... It's probably still performed in London. Yeah. Yeah. In mid-91, he met Lord Alfred Douglas, who was young and handsome and spoiled, and they had a tempestuous affair. They were reckless in public. They were together all the time. Uh, Wilde would often explain away their relationship as the sort of, the sort of thing between like David and Jonathan, uh. right? Greek Greek love, right? So between an, uh, an older man and a younger man that there would have these developing relationships and that's sort of how he would explain it like oh society just doesn't get it but in truth there were some pretty pretty sketchy things going on lord alfred douglas initiated him into the underground world in london of gay prostitution so they would bring a working class young man and oscar would wine him dine him and then go to bed with him and the danger of having you know, a, a working class stranger be the one that you are going to bed with was part of the draw mm. for Oscar Wilde. Uh, the problem was Lord Alfred Douglas had a father and Lord Alfred Douglas's father was a hot headed fellow. He was the guy who invented the modern rules of boxing. Oh, wow. Right. So he's got the kind of guy you don't really <laughs> want to mess with. Yeah. And so he would often, you know, get really angry with Oscar and Oscar would, would try to mollify him because he can't just say, screw you and do it. I'll do whatever he wants to because this father would take things public and yep. he doesn't really want to let go of Lord Alfred. And so he's, he's kind of caught in this weird familial fight. And he, Lord Alfred said notoriously one time, I do not say that you are it, but you look it and you pose at it, which is just as bad. And if I catch you and my son again in any public restaurant, I will thrash you. Wow. Um, so he it's, it's pretty intense. In 1984, the importance of Ernest come, comes out to... The, the Importance of Being Earnest, another play, comes out to an excellent reception, and 15 weeks later, he is in prison. So what happened was, in 1895, Lord Alfred's dad leaves a card at one of the clubs that says, For Oscar Wilde, posing Somdomite. He meant Sodomite. It was just a misspelling, but posing Sodomite. And that was a, a almost a public declaration, right? right? Mm-hmm. So Wilde decides to prosecute him for criminal libel. Ah. So just because it's been this public thing and the only, the problem is that the only way to exonerate yourself for public libel is to prove that your statement is actually true. So he put himself, he put the Lord Alfred's dad in this position where the only way that he could exonerate himself from this crime was to actually prove that Oscar Wilde was a sodomite and digging into Oscar Wilde's past, he obviously found ample evidence. So they went to trial and eventually when they found some of the prostitutes that Wilde had interacted with, he he balked and dropped the case. But a few days later, of course, they came out with charges against Wilde himself for public indecency and sodomy and that sort of thing and took him and to solicitation. court. Solicitation. Solicitation and all you know, he he went for all sorts of things. And in court he was 
sometimes flippant. He was witty. He didn't take it as seriously as perhaps he needed to. He lied about his age when he was under, under oath. And they would bring that back again and again and again to hurt him. And so here's, here's one quote. So he said, uh, he, someone claiming that works of art are not capable of being moral or immoral, but only well or poorly made. So this is what he would claim. And that only brutes and illiterates whose views on art are incalculably stupid would make such, such judgments about art. So he wasn't exactly making friends. Right. They they asked him nope. directly whether he had ever kissed this certain kid. And Wilde responded, oh, dear, no, he was a particularly plain boy, unfortunately ugly. I pitied him for it. And then, of course, they would press him and say, why was his ugliness relevant? Right. Why does right. it, why does his ugliness matter? And he's like, uh, you, you're using my words. And I, I spoke flippantly and I should have spoken more seriously. So he, you know, he, a lot of those slips and all of the evidence all mounting up, he eventually sort of said, I am my own prosecutor in this case. Right. He. He sort of sunk his own ship. Mm. And then they were going to arrest him and he could have fled. His whole family was sort of encouraging him to to flee. I think his mom wanted him to stay and fight it. Mm. But eventually he was arrested and charged and then sentenced to two years of hard labor amid cries of shame from the entire courthouse. And then he would go to this hard labor. And you guys want to guess what his hard labor was? I have no idea. Do you know? Mm. He had to run on a treadmill. Seriously? Like, yeah. When? Yeah. He he walked on a treadmill. I imagine it was working some sort of piece mm. of machinery and separate fibers and old ropes. Okay. okay. That was his job. It sounds. It but, sucks. It, I, I guess it doesn't sound. When, when I hear it hard like labor, Jean Valjean or anything. Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like you're sent to the mines or something. Yeah. But so it doesn't sound that bad. It that one wasn't so bad. He he did have very limited reading there, right? Where it was just I think the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress, and then he well, moved need? to Wandsworth where it was far worse. He collapsed eventually from hunger and illness and ruptured his eardrum on the way down mm, okay. and, and spent, well, I think it was like two months in the infirmary, uh, which was, was really hard. And then eventually he requested some books and got some actual decent access. Uh, I think after his sickness, he was transferred to reading jail. You guys know reading? It's not, it's oh, not, it's oh, not Redding, a pun Redding. on, oh, Re- is it Redding? It's okay. Redding. So Redding Jail, where he eventually got some books, including Dante, stuff by St. Augustine, and there he would write a 50,000 word letter to Alfred Douglas, mm-hmm. which he would eventually publish under the name De Profundis, mm-hmm. and which really messed with Alfred Douglas to hear all this, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff in there. Sure. Um, part of it was him forgiving Alfred for everything he had done oh. and all of that stuff, and for both of their sakes, but... I think there were still some accusations in there. There was one point during the trial when Alfred had told him, like, when you are not on your pedestal, you are not interesting. Wow. Which is rough. Yeah. That's rough to hear mm-hmm. from someone you like. After he was released, he had three years of decline before death. During that time, De Profundis was published, his letters were published, and he published The Ballad of Reading Jail, which is just was sort of an expose Reading. on... Reading. Reading Jail. I always thought Reading Jail because I thought it was a fun pun, but <laughs> like it's not. That, yeah. Uh, I'd go to Reading Jail. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Reading Jail? Yeah. Well, it's not. Reading that. Jail sounds like that you just got no no good books. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, <laughs> you were in Reading Jail. All right. Oh, well, or you have to read like just the Reader's Digest. Like, that's it. <laughs> Actually, be... that, I feel like that's not too bad. Eh, Reader's Digest? I don't know. It's like young adult science fiction novels. No. Oh, yeah. Like uh, Animorphs? <laughs> oh, I, I would do that. Man. Sign me up for Animorphs. Like only Goosebumps books. Sign me up just, for R.L. Stein. That's my boy. I read like four Goosebumps books in a day one time. I wanted to set a record. Yeah, yesterday I heard it. Oh. <laughs> uh, mm, yes, not yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Awkward. So he, he uh, goes to 
Paris, never to return to London. And people do visit him. He's reunited with Douglas in uh, 1899 or 97. I think it's 99. And their families did not agree with this. So eventually they were separated after they spent some time in Naples. Constance, his wife, would not let him see the kids, but would Mm. send him like $3 a week. It It was not much. Uh, His final months were spent in a dingy hotel in Paris. He wasn't really writing anymore. He was spending every penny he had on booze. Uh, He famously said, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One of us has to go. (laughs) Robert Ross, remember that young Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 17-year-old, was actually really faithful Mm -hmm. and and stayed by his bedside kind of near near to the end. And at at the very end, he was conditionally baptized into the Catholic Church. And after he had graduated, not graduated from jail, after he was released (laughs) from jail, he had tried to go to a sort of a Catholic retreat for the church. He had sort of found religion again and was devastated when they refused to let him come, right? He, he was not allowed to go. And then he died of meningitis. Wow. And there are people who take different stances on what caused that meningitis. It's, it perhaps, perhaps was syphilitic or caused from his ear injury. And then he was buried in Paris with a... And, and, and his tomb is still sort of a destination for people that are ostracized from culture or marginalized, right? People still sort of make the trek and it's sort of a famous thing to do to kiss his statue. In fact, so much so was the problem. There was so much lipstick all over it that they now have a plastic fence around it that you can't. Oh, really? They, they yeah. won't let the people kiss it anymore? Yeah. It's kind of gross. You can still kiss the window, but it's just mm, not the go. same thing. It's gross. Yeah. Have you been to? I have not. That's one place that I haven't. I, I've, I've always wanted to, but I think it's a little outside Paris. So oh, whenever we go, okay. it's a, it's a ways to get. Yeah. Bummer. It's kind of a bummer story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that complicates things is that Oscar Wilde is, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to stay as least controversial here as I can. Oscar Wilde is often touted as an LGBT hero, but I, and I looked for the article again today. My understanding is that when he died, he had renounced his homosexual ways and was, was devastated that he had treated his wife in such a manner. So I, I really wish I had the direct quotes from him because he did have, he had spoken about this and his ways as he was heading towards death, Hmm. but I couldn't find the article again. I I tried really hard, but I couldn't find it. So I I don't think his attitude was that, that his lifestyle should be spread and spread unconditionally and that he had been abused. He was posthumously pardoned. Hmm. Like after they stopped, after Britain had was the sodomy re- laws like, were revoked. The sodomy laws Britain. were revoked, and then he was posthumously pardoned for what he had. What he had I done. mean, so I mean, Oscar Wilde is is going to be and currently is kind of a uh, a figure that is going that now is going to be kind of retconned into modern sensibilities about right. sexual ethics. And but that's the thing is, he didn't have those sensibilities. Exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, when we're talking nineteenth century nineteenth century conversations about attraction and sexual orientation, like they don't. In the 19th century, you don't have a, the category, category of homosexual right, that we exactly. do now and right. say that it is a like an ontological sort of essence of a person like we do nowadays. And that's sort of an open that's that's a really I find that a really fascinating debate. Just right. um, uh, talking. Anyway, so we don't we don't need to talk. About, we don't yeah, need we to don't, get I don't want to go. I don't want to go deep um, into it, but I do know that his, his it, views change later mm-hmm. in life. But he is going to be I think there's a movie coming out about his about his relationship with with um, Lord. Is it Lord Antony? Alfred. Out Lord Alfred. And it's from the trailer that I watched it. It's, it's, they're kind of setting it up as like, here's a, like sort of the, the, a proto hero of the, of, mm-hmm. of the pride movement. And so here are all the ways that, you know, he was um, hard done by. And he was hard done by. And that's a, that's a tragic story. Um, but it is kind of retconning the, uh, uh, someone's 
Is that the right word, Thomas? Yep. Yeah. Sort of rec- I mean, it's yep. when you're having, when you're telling them, when you're having sort of modern philosophies or modern um, sort of political, not access to grind, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Modern, modern political sensibilities. And, and, and then over, over sort of someone else's life in a different time. I mean, it's just, it's, it's too, it's too easy of a story now that's going to slip into a modern narrative. Anyway, but, um, but we're, yeah. not, we're not going to try to do that. We're going to talk right. about... Right, that's, that, that's neither here nor there. But, so let's, so let's move to his book. So yeah. The Picture of Dorian Gray, I'll, I'm going to give you guys the basic story, and then I might, might read a couple small spots of it, and then we will end with the introduction. I know that's a weird way to do mm-hmm. it. Backwards, I like this. But doing things backwards, that's yeah. my plan. So the, the tale opens with Lord Basil Hallward, and, or sorry, Basil Hallward, the painter, and Lord Henry Wotton, the noble, and young Dorian Gray. And Basil Hallward is painting Dorian Gray. And so Dorian has to stand there. And this isn't the first time that Basil has painted Dorian. He's put him in other scenes as like characters and stuff. But this is a portrait specifically of Dorian for that moment. And so Basil kind of gets finished and Lord Henry and Dorian go out into the yard, out into the little garden. And then we we sort of go into this weird chapter two, which is all philosophy, right? It's, it's talking about, well, I'll, I'll have to get there. Um, let's see. You understand me? This of all in this world. All right. So I'm, I'm going to give you a few instances of just the cleverness in this book. There's, there's a reason I love it. And part of the reason I love it is because man, Quotable. no one could ter- turn a phrase like Oscar Wilde could turn a phrase. Yeah. I actually have a law. So you guys, we keep commonplace books, mm-hmm. right? For, for new listeners, a commonplace book is where you record all the quotes that have had an influence on you or you think are interesting or you just want to write it down for later. I won't allow myself to take anything from the picture of Dorian Gray because if I did, <laughs> I book. would just have to rewrite the whole book because every third line is a quotation that you want. To, they're like, ha, that's clever. You can put that on a bumper sticker, yeah. right? Half of them are. It's, it's incredible. Can I ask so side just because you brought up commonplace books? How many quotes should I be, should I be leaving a book with? Like in a normal book, I, I mean sometimes that's a weird that's a weird question. Uh, I'm worried that I'm trying to take too much out of my books. So oh. like I'll end with forty or fifty like things I want to take out of them. Is that way too many? I don't think so. It depends on the book, I guess. Okay, I, that's it for me. I just write down when I see something good. Sometimes it'll be one or two right. if it's not a very quotable book. For Moby Dick, I had like thirty three quotes. Okay. So it just depends. Okay. I'd say the the quality changes things. Cool. So here's here's just sub, just a few quips and you guys this is the smallest tiniest taste. I just kind of flip to a random page. You should read it if you're if the only thing you are interested in is clever quips cuz man nobody quips clever like Oscar Wilde. So he says conscience and cowardice are really the same things, Basil. Conscience is the trade name of the firm. That's all. Uh, here's where they're talking about another woman. He's like you, they're saying, talking about Lady Brandon. He says, you're not going to run away so soon, Mr. Howard, she screamed out. You know her curiously shrill voice. Yes, she is a peacock and everything but beauty, said <laughs> Lord Henry, which is great. It's good. And then more about Lady Brandon. It says, but Lady Brandon treats her guests exactly as an auctioneer treats his goods. She either explains them away entirely away or tells one everything about them except what one wants to know. <laughs> good. Here's, and then he goes, poor Lady Brandon, you are too hard on her, Harry, said Howard listlessly. My dear fellow, she tried to found a salon and only succeeded in opening a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. How could I admire her? <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's quote after quote. And that those aren't even the best ones. Like, again, that is just sort of a random page. All right. So they go out into the garden and they begin to discuss 
philosophy, and I'm going to give you a little bit of it. Well, a little setup. Like, what is who is like? What is Dorian? How old is he? And Lord Henry. So Dorian is Lord? Dorian is like I mean, maybe twenty, mm-hmm. and Lord Lord Henry is just sort of a man about town who doesn't. What would you call him? A cynic? Yeah, I mean, he's he's so. Basil, Dorian, and Lord Henry are all kind of facets of Oscar Wilde himself. But he's sort of one of these guys that says outlandish and hilarious things with a wink in his eye and with a with a witty sort of quip. Lord, 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 Lord Henry. Henry. And no one believes him. And he'll say sort of terrible things. Everyone's like, oh, Lord Henry, you're absolutely terrible. I can't believe you just said that terrible thing. And they laugh and, about it. And, and they also laugh on. about it. Ha, 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 ha. Um, and, you know, Lord Henry makes jokes about his wife. Like, oh, her and I, we just, you know... Uh, we, as long as we don't tell each other about each other's affairs, and he means affairs like seeing other people, right. then we get along just fine. You know, he's like that kind of, I don't know if it's cynical. He's 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 um, very much that um, fin de siècle kind of. Um, what? Fin de siècle, the end of the, the end of the end of the 19th century, that sort of, um, um, you, don't, you don't know the nope. phrase? Oh, okay. Uh, that's a longer podcast, I guess. But he's very much this sort of, yeah, he uh, surrounds himself with beautiful things and doesn't take anything seriously. Hmm. And there's probably, like, if you scratch beneath the surface, there's probably, like, a giant pit of despair. But ah. um, but he we see it. keeps it covered. We see it later. You see it later. Yeah. But he keeps it covered by um, sort of his foppish ways and his and his humorous phrases. Um but he has a profound effect on Dorian. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I wanted to get to right now. So this is, this is like, usually when I read it for the first time with the seniors, they sort of gloss over this part because it's boring. There's no action and there, there are fewer clever quips. The first chapter or the... Chapter two. Okay. Chapter two and yeah, continue a little bit later in chapter two. But this is where really the conversation that will turn Dorian's entire life, the, the course of his whole life, it'll redirect the river. This is that conversation and it's easy to miss. So they go and they sit outside and well, this is sorry, this is before they actually go out into the garden. Um, So there's two parts of the conversation, one that happens while they're being painted and then one in the garden. And then Dorian asks, have you really a very bad influence, Lord Henry, as bad as Basil says? There is no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray. All influence is immoral, immoral from the scientific point of view. Why? Because to influence a person is to give him one's own soul. He does not think his natural thoughts or burn with his natural passions. His virtues are not real to him. His sins, if there, if there are such things as sins, are borrowed. He becomes an echo of someone else's music, an actor of a part that has not been written for him. The aim of life is self-development, to realize one's nature perfectly. That is what each of us is here for. People are afraid of themselves nowadays. They have forgotten the highest of all duties, the duty that one owes to oneself. Of course, they are charitable. They feed the hungry and clothe the beggar, but their own souls starve and are naked. Courage has gone out of our race. Perhaps we never really had it. The terror of society, which is the basis of morals, the terror of God, which is the secret of religion, these are the two things that govern us. And yet, and then there's a little bit of banter with, uh, with Basil, and yet, continued Lord Henry in his low musical voice and with that graceful wave of the hand that was always so characteristic of him and that he had even in his Eton days, I believe that if one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every expression, or sorry, to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenic (laughs) ideal, to something finer, richer than the Hellenic ideal it may be. But the bravest man amongst us is afraid of himself. The mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival in the self-denial that mars our lives. 
we are punished for our refusals. Every impulse that we strive to strangle broods in the mind and poison us, poisons us. The body sins once and has done with its sin, for action is a mode of purification. Nothing remains then but the recollection of a pleasure or the luxury of a regret. The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with the longing for the things it has forbidden it to itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. All right, and then he, and then he goes on. But that is the very beginning. So what, what pieces of philosophy did you guys catch in there? I mean, so the essential, it's uh, that, um, that the only way to sort of be an authentic self or the sort of the duty that one has is one's own self-development. And the way that one self-develops is to sort of drink deeply of beautiful things and experiences and let them affect you. And, um, and that, and then uh, be, authenticity, sort of, it is a, it is a cry of, of um, that authenticity Yourself. is the only good. Yeah. Um, but not just authenticity, giving into impulses, right? Yeah, yeah. So every impulse you have, even if it's a sinful one, you mm-hmm. can just it. indulge and then it goes away, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you leave it, that desire will sick in your mind. Even more so is, I think, important that he undercuts the notion of morality entirely. He yeah. says morality, which is, it's because we are afraid of our fellow men. And then the the fear of like religion is just the fear of God. So both of those things are fear. And if you were truly bold, you would live out all of the impulses that you have. So that's a big thing for a young man in his 18 to 20 range to hear. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of a Nietzschean will to power kind of argument where he's saying Mm -hmm. that the only thing that isn't, that is important is, is your own experience and your own, um, and your own uh, um, sort of going for it. And, and, And the truly admirable are those that, follow the threads of curiosity even into the dark woods that everyone's told you not to go in and that kind of thing. Right. So it's, um, and this really is that basis of the aesthetic of philosophy that Wilde um, had. Yeah, this is the, like the ground floor of aestheticism. What's sort of. fascinating to me is that like Wilde lived that, but then this book is highly critical of that's it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, we'll get there, but mm-hmm. the book contradicts that. Yeah, view. that's right. the weird dichotomy is yep. that the li- the life that Oscar lived was essentially was Lord Henry. philosophy. Mm-hmm. It was right. Lord Henry, yep. which is mm-hmm. so interesting. Okay, and then the second part of the, of the philosophy that turns Dorian is when they talk about his youth. So he said, uh, basically, he says, you shouldn't allow yourself to become sunburnt, Dorian. It's un- unbecoming. And then Dorian's like, what does it matter? Ha ha. And he says, it should matter everything to you because you have the most marvelous youth and youth is the one thing worth having. And he goes, I don't feel that Lord Henry. And he says, no, you don't feel it now. Someday when you are old and wrinkled and ugly, when thought has seared your forehead with its lines and passion branded your lips with its hideous fires, you will feel it. You will feel it terribly. Now, wherever you go, you charm the world. Will it always be so? You have a wonderful, beautiful, wonderfully beautiful face, Mr. Gray. Don't frown. You have. And beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is, the, it is of the great facts of the world like sunlight or springtime, or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has its divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. You smile. Ah, when you have lost it, you won't smile. People say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so, but at least it is not so superficial as thought is. To me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Yes, Mr. Gray, the gods have been good to you, but what the gods give, they quickly take away. 
You have only a few years in which to live really, perfectly, and fully. When your youth goes, your beauty will go with it. And then it goes on. Mm-hmm. Basically, you'll live and the only thing you'll have left to you is the memory of your horrible defeats. And so, Dorian like freaks out, right? Dorian. Like, he's like bummed by all this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he has just been told that like there is no moral floor and the best thing to do is to indulge. And also your beauty that you have now and are enjoying so fully is right. going to disappear. Yeah, you got a short window in which yeah. to do it. And then the rest of your Everything life is, is buckle up for right. sadness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they go back in and he sees the, the painting and the painting is absolutely gorgeous, right? It's just been finished. And Basil's like, hey, do you like it? And he's like, how could I like it? I'm getting older and it's going to stay the same age. And so he gives this wild prayer that says, essentially, I would give my soul for it to be the other way around, for the painting to age and not me, for me to retain my youth. And we find out later is that that's what happened. All right, we are, we're, we're buttoned up against my time window here, so I'm going to have to hustle a little bit through the plot. Go for it. And then I'll hit on some important stuff. So after that moment, after that wild prayer, we, find, we do find later that the painting has like it's it's come true the painting will age and he will not and he retains his his youth and not and just age it'll also take on his moral we'll, we'll, we'll get there right. so he he in a moment he's going to fall in love with a woman named Sybil Sybil Vane and Sybil Vane is an actress and she's a great actress and then he goes and visits her and eventually he proposes to her and they're going to get married and then he brings all his friends and then she is all of a sudden a terrible actress and he doesn't know why and it's because she has now felt real love and so she can't fake it anymore and he thinks, and he only really loved her for her art. And so he is like, you don't interest me anymore. And I'm like, the magic is totally gone and leaves her. And he's been cruel. And he goes home and looks at sort of the painting. And the painting now has a twinge of he's, the cruel. He's so cruel. She kills herself. Well, that's what he finds out the next morning. Yeah. Is he's, He wakes up and he's feeling kind of bummed about it. And he's like, maybe I made the wrong decision. I'll go and make things right. And then he finds out that she has killed herself. And Lord Henry comes and twists it and said that what she lived was a beautiful tragedy. And that it's okay. Right? What you've given her is a gift. <coughs> she would have grown to be this old, listless, boring. boring actress woman of the low class, and you have spared her, and you've essentially made her Juliet when she would have been so much less. Is he the devil? He. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. The thing is, is he's so charming. Yeah. Lord Henry knows how to charm a room, but man, the stuff he says is it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And it gets, and Dorian believes it, kind of. He, he feels bad about it, but he's he does sort of internalize that principle and is like, yeah. I guess, you know, these, these sort of tragedies are the things that are the spice of life. And Yeah, Henry knows, and there, there's, a, there's a spot that I skipped. I, I call it the alchemist. It's where he knows that mm-hmm. he toys with people to see their reactions. Mm-hmm. And so you know that for through almost all of this, Henry is not sincere. He is messing with Dorian to see what happens. Yeah, he, he sets himself as, as an alchemist or a scientist, and he just sort of drops these little phrases into people's lives to see how they work and to see how they, he can kind of get them to do, to do things. He's kind of like... It's kind of like a troll in that way. Like right. he's, he's sort of oh, insinuating absolutely. things yeah, yeah, yeah. and then people will go off and actually do and these stuff things. stuff that he doesn't believe at all. In fact, Basil calls him on it all the time. Yeah. He's like, I don't think you say, you mean half the stuff you say. Actually, you're a really good husband, at least then, for a while. And then when it comes back to Lord Henry, they're like, Lord Henry, this is your fault. You're the one who said this. He's like, why? It wasn't the one that made him go and do these sorts of things. All right. I'm saying is just fancy nonsense. So after this, we see Dorian's rise in culture and moral fall. So as he is getting more popular, he is degrading morally. And then eventually it gets so bad. And then rumors start to circulate about how terrible he is. But he's still so... And once you see his face, you just can't believe the stuff about him because he's still so beautiful. Eventually... And charming, like a little cherub. Yeah. His his friendship grows with Henry and falls with Basil. And eventually Basil comes and confronts him and says, I hear some horrible things about you and I just can't believe them. 
especially when I see your face. The stuff that I've heard will leave its mark, right? And he's like, well, you want to see what I actually look like? And takes him up and shows him the painting that has been growing more and more disgusting every day. There are blood on the hands from the death of Sybil. There's a weird, cruel twist to the face. It is old and graying, and it's it's just looking terrible. And Basil all of a sudden realizes what's going on and sort of despairs. And then all of a sudden, Dorian sort of gets disgusted with Basil and doesn't want a secret to get out, so he murders him as he sits there in the chair. And then he has to call in a blackmail to get a friend to come and dissolve the body in acid. Yep. Because... It never is it's never made clear what he knows about this guy. Breaking but, Bad style. But it is. It is uh, yeah. he, he pretty much says, I will out this secret about you and you will have to live in infamy because and of all this stuff that I And that's the section that's probably where they're insinuating homosexuality. The secret mm. is that they had this love affair back in the, in the day. Right. That's, that's the piece that's kind of there. Mm-hmm. After that, he's feeling pretty bad, understandably, after killing a guy. Right. So he decides to clean him, uh, to clean the soul by means of the senses. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to an opium den. And in the opium den, he runs into, someone calls him by, what is it, Prince Charming? Mm-hmm. And then this, the brother of Sybil Vane, right. the actress, had been looking for him for years and years and had only heard him referred to by her as Prince Charming. So chases him down and is about to kill him. He's like, say your prayers because you killed my sister and I'm going to kill you. And he's right. like, how long ago did this happen? And the guy's like, I don't know, 10, 15 years? And he's like, look at my face. Yeah. And so they go under a, a street lamp and he looks like he's 20 years old. So he'd been like five. Mm-hmm. And he's like, clearly it wasn't me that hurt your sister. Yeah. And the guy is convinced and leaves. And then he goes back into the opium den and an old woman is like, he hasn't changed in 15 years. And right. so he's kind of set back on the trail. Uh, and then he's feeling real weird and bad and and then eventually he decides to go outside and get a little fresh air and he goes with a hunting party and one of the guys shoots a little wild and hits someone in the brush and it turns out to be Sybil Vane's brother so he's safe yep he's ultimately safe from everything his secrets are are with him nobody knows about the painting nobody everyone's knows like anything. whatever happened to Basil he probably just was a grumpy artist that went to Paris yeah because he, he's really smart in the way that he conceals it mm-hmm. and then even among all this freedom, he still sort of despairs about where his soul is, goes up and looks at the painting and knows that, like, it, he thought for a while that the painting would be his conscience, that it would show him when he has done something wrong. And now it's just a picture of his absolutely degraded soul. So he takes a knife to it and then the painting dies and so does he. Like, it's it's switched. The painting is immediately back to how it was originally beautiful. And then, and then all of that horror is visited upon his body, and they don't even know who it is. Yeah, the cops are like, who's this ugly old man? Yeah, just and some then, random old guy in this guy's house. And then, and then, so all of the, it's been transposed back. So as soon as the painting gets stabbed, it goes back onto Dorian. He's this withered, ugly old man where the the legacy of his sins are visited upon his, his, uh, his you know, body. And right. his face, which is an interesting question to talk to kids about is like, do you think that's true? Do you think like, not just a life of, I mean, obviously a life of hard living in terms of substances will have its effect, but do you think a, if you live a morally degrading life that it is going to play itself out on your features? Yeah, that's, that's an a interesting, fun question. An interesting question. I also think this is a great book to read for, uh, I don't know if you guys had this experience, but growing up as a Christian, I was always like, if I only had one day. To sort of like do whatever I wanted to do and have no rules and experience yeah. it all with no repercussions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It'd be awesome. It'd be awesome. But that's what that's what Dorian had. Yeah. He, he had, had a lifetime yeah. with no repercussions and is miserable. And is miserable and hates himself and hates his life and lives in this horrible vacuity, right, where nothing matters, right? His, his blue china will not make him feel better. Right. Right. And so there's that. But the weird thing is that 
this is the life that Oscar Wilde lived. Even after the publication of this book, he still lived the same life. Mm -hmm. So he must have uh, either written it prior to having his attitudes changed or, or, but, Mm -hmm. but I think it was even after he had met his, his young lover. And so it's just this weird tension between the real life of Oscar Wilde and what he has written in this tale. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only fun moral question that comes up because one of the things that came up in his trial was, is this book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, a moral or immoral book? And Donaldson and I have been talking about this for a long time, but can a book be moral or immoral? And that's what brings us back to the introduction. Okay. Yeah. Or sorry, his preface. So I'm going to read you his preface. It's only... This is just a bunch of quips. Oh, so many lines. Yeah, and it's mostly just quips. So this is the preface to his second edition. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal, the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. And here's, here's the, the, the big one. There is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. And he would reiterate that during his trial. The 19th century dislike of realism is the, cage of, the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his face in a glass. The moral life of man forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. Here's another important one. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. And, and it, it sort of goes on. I don't want to read the whole thing. But those are, those are, I think, the important ones, right? No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of, of style. There's no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. And I've had this conversation, and I obviously play devil's advocate here in maintaining that no book is a moral thing. It is an artifact. The author who wrote it can be moral, the person who receives its message can be moral, but the book itself is a thing. Now, I had this conversation with uh, with a friend of mine, and he said, well, it depends on what your definition of moral is. And just like any philosophical conversation, it depends on definitions. If the definition is it encourages good things, well, then, of course, a book can encourage good things. I always associated moral in my mind with something that can take action. Only actions can be moral, and a man is a thing that can you know, take actions, right? Doing a thing can be moral or immoral. A book sitting on a shelf is not doing anything, and so it's not moral or immoral. It's just a great question. I don't know that we influence. have enough time to, ad- to address it, but yeah, if we're, if we're to discuss influence, it can have a certainly a- an immoral influence, but that's because the person is reacting in a certain way. You can read a book that encourages you to go steal things from old ladies, and if the way you react is saying, I would never do that, and that's deplorable, well, you're having a, po- it's, it's actually influencing you towards the positive, right? You're having a good reaction to this book. So the book would, in that case, maybe be moral. It's just, it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. And I think the people at the trial certainly didn't agree with Oscar Wilde. They, they obviously thought books can be moral or immoral. And that's an attitude I think that permeates the 1800s, especially the Victorian era, the Victorian era. But I don't know, it's something to think about. 
Yes, and we had this conversation a lot, just uh, not on the podcast. Yeah. I, I fall more on the fact that books can be persuasive and that and that authors know what they're doing. So, and so that the persuasion, author is immoral. And then, and then that persuasion yeah. through the story ends up being... It, 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 it's like the Jedi mind trick, right? Like, right. okay, so maybe maybe the super virtuous can be inoculated to it, but for those who aren't, for those who are swayable and they get their hands on this on something that sways them. It's then, like it's know. like the movie Fight Club. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. Like that's that's a movie that's launched a thousand like like basement fight clubs. <laughs> and also just like a, a, a sort of a pretty dark view of humanity. Yeah. Um but has sort of uh, an element of sort of this persuasion to it. So yeah, things like that. Like that. That's um, um, do you ban it? Do you ban it? I don't know. Do you put the do you put the author on trial? Probably not. Uh, at least they did in the nineteenth century. Although is, is an author yeah. allowed to write something that he dis, that he personally disagrees with just to make you think about it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So in, I don't know that's, in poetry just, is that okay? Can mm-hmm. I write a character that is convincing but is I think the devil? Right? Is is Lord Henry okay? But the thing is, like the book takes a moral stance. It's saying that Dorian's philosophy and viewpoint and Lord Henry's influence was a bad thing. Oh sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I'd say that if you were if you're going to have to slot this book into moral or immoral, I would put it firmly in the moral mm-hmm, category. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that there aren't books out there that would go the other way. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. So anyway. something to think about, audience. If you have an opinion on whether or not books can be moral or immoral, you can sort of shoot us an email and, and we'll try to get back to you if we can. It's, it's, near, the end of the, it's near the end of time. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that there's a specific thing I wanted you guys to leave with. I, I want you to go read the book partially because yeah. it's so interesting, especially considering the author's life. And man, it's, it's just, just a fun hoot. to read. Yeah. Like it's just so it's fun not, to read. It's not super long. So it, yeah, you can mm-hmm. read it in a couple hours. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, uh, that, I mean, that's it for me. Rock cool. and roll. Cool. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us on Twitter at Stuff. And hopefully by this point, we've gotten that hundredth review, but keep, let's get that thousandth. Woo! Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's a real uptick. 10X. You know, like, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously, rock and roll. I think that's it. We never make mistakes and yep. <coughs> we have no quotes. So no this classical is, stuff you sh- we got wrong. Yeah. I'm sure there is though. Nah, Apparently I pronounce British things wrong. <coughs> I, I pronounce Reading entrepreneur and wrong. Ah, that's I say dude. Inter- interpreter. Interpreter. It's very funny. It's yeah, very, it was, very, it was very And I kind of want to keep doing that. I feel like Go it's a pretty little personal quip. Yeah, you should make it worse alert. and worse every time. All right, this is Entrepreneur. <laughs> this is the worst. All right, this is Thomas, AJ, and Graham signing off. Bye. Bye. Bye.